How's everyone doing this morning? Because I've had a good week, I hope, and pray. Um, we'll give uh, the, the moms a little bit of time to get back up here before we begin. Um, but this is the last part of uh, a three-part series, and uh, it's it's a series that I've I've truly enjoyed uh, studying through. My hope and prayer is that you have too. Uh, if you weren't here, we uh, looked through the story of creation uh, a couple weeks ago when we were at church camp. I thought, what better place to uh, study the story of creation than in the midst of creation itself? And uh, it's just a wonderful reminder of God's incredible beauty and power and glory. Uh, when every time we look around us. Of course, the world's not perfect. Um, We know that, but uh, that is not on God. That's on us. Um, But uh, it is, it's just been a a great series, and I know last week's was a little bit of a downer, right? We looked at the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. But before we jump into this this morning, I would just like to to pray um, over the reading of scripture and over the studying of God's word. Uh, Generally, Father, Lord, I just pray that you'd reveal yourself to us in the midst of your word, Lord God, that you have given us this perfect scripture, Lord, that we may uh, just catch a glimpse of you, Lord, that we may know you um, and feel your presence, Lord. I just ask that for everyone here that uh, perhaps it might be something new altogether that they will hear this morning, uh, that you would reveal yourself in a new way to us, Lord, that your truth um, would just be written in our hearts, Lord, this morning, and uh, that it would draw us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So again, uh, a couple weeks ago we looked over at the story of creation. And it, again, it gives us just a glimpse of God's magnificent glory, uh, his, his awe-inspiring creativeness. And it tells us in that story that everything he creates, he deems good. Every single day he goes through creation, he deems it good. And then we get to the pinnacle of his creation at the second half of day six, where he creates man. And it tells us that we are created in the very image of God. And as he concludes this day, he deems all of creation very good. Uh, But sadly, you know, things did not remain this way. And as we looked at a little bit last week, the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, where this very pinnacle of God's creation turns its back on their creator. They're seeking to be like God and disobeying his command. Now, within the story of the fall, we're introduced to man's ultimate enemy. And we see that the template he has used here by the great deceiver in his efforts to pull us away from God. In the story of the fall, we see that first thing that Satan does is he questions God's word, right? Did God really say? Hoping to plant a seed of doubt within Eve, and once that seed is firmly planted, he moves to contradict God's word. God didn't actually say, right? And then once more, he twists and corrupts God's word, and he substitutes, lastly, God's word for a false reality, a lie. This is what God really meant. So he moves us down this line, planting a seed of doubt. Did God really say that in his word? Well, this is not what God really said. Let me tell you what God really said. And then he begins to substitute God's word. It's the same tactic used throughout human history. And sadly, we still see it today, and I believe it's seeped into many churches as well. We're selling a truth Selling out the truth of the gospel, excuse me, for a false word. We see Christians nowadays picking and choosing parts of the Bible to to listen to and softening other parts of God's word, omitting certain areas altogether because it doesn't fit into their lifestyle. 
And what happens when we do this? We see a fall, right? We see a turning away from God. And this has happened to people that I love very much. It's this mindset that begins with the question, did God really say? We begin to justify our life choices by altering God's word to say what we want it to say rather than what it actually says. Well, here's a newsflash this morning, guys. God's word can be a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Because of that... It, or th- that's because it goes against the grain of our fallen nature, right? It calls us out of our selfish thinking. It calls us out of our selfish living and into a life of sacrificial servanthood and love. But this is where we are now, right? There, where we were once in perfect harmony with God and his creation, but through sin there's now suffering, right? There's now disease and destruction and death and brokenness. Ultimately, this leaves us without hope unless there's some sort of intervention by God on our behalf. And so we see at the very end of Genesis chapter 3, we see the first sacrifice required to cover man's sin when God makes skins to cover Adam and Eve. And it's a foreshadowing of sorts, the ultimate sacrifice that was already in motion, where the Son of God would leave his throne in heaven and in humility take on human likeness. We would have, and he would live a perfect life and die on the cross with humanity's sin borne upon his shoulders suffering what we ourselves deserve. But the story doesn't end there, right? See, the enemy at this moment thought he had won. But he'd only bruised the heel of Jesus, as it tells us in Genesis 3. Jesus conquered the grave, and in doing so, he crushed the enemy's head, the serpent, the head of the serpent. And where, where we were once hopeless, we are now hopeful. Where there was, we were once lost, we are now found. And once we were once dead in our trespasses, we are now alive in Christ. And I know last week's message was a little tough to hear, at least it was for me, because the fall of man in the garden is one of the most heart-breaking and gut-wrenching moments in human history. But there's good news this morning, and that's that God has come through for us, right? That's why we worship this morning, right? That's why we celebrate. That's why we study God's Word. That's why we still show up to church on Sundays and corporately come together as a body of believers, So my prayer for all of you this morning is that this message will bring you hope and that it will help you overcome any darkness and pain or suffering uh, in this life that you may be currently feeling or have felt or in the future you may feel. Uh, So I'll give you guys a moment to turn to Romans chapter 8. This is where we're going to be mostly this morning. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Did everyone have a long week? Everyone seems kind of quiet this morning. (laughs) I'll try to keep you awake. Um, Man, it's like you hear a pin drop this morning. Crazy. Yeah, that's... (laughs) Keep everyone awake and make some noise. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Maybe because all the kids left. I don't know, but uh, it seems a little quiet. Uh, Beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the present sufferings of this world and the frustration of all creation are symptomatic of something being wrong. The fact is that everyone and everything is in need of being saved. 
And scripture is very clear that we are in need of a savior. We cannot be our own savior. We're in need of external forces to help. So beginning with verse 18 this morning, Paul speaks about suffering. And before we go any further, it is important to understand this. And you may already know this in life, that we will all suffer in this life. I don't get joy out of telling you that, (laughs) but it's in scripture, so I have to share it with you. It's not a likelihood, it's a fact. It is, in fact, inescapable. This is a fallen world, and the result of it is suffering, disease, loss, persecution. Within the suffering, though, there is hope. There is a sovereign God. So we need to not fear the suffering, but rather we are to trust God. We must hold on to the promises of God's word. See, we do have a Savior, and we need to trust in him. Let's look at Matthew 10 real quick. It says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Jesus tells us we're going to be hated for his name's sake, and we're, but we will have to endure John 16.33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. But listen up, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, the, grace, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But it talks about us suffering for a little time. Acts 14.22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's pretty clear. The Bible does not sugarcoat this truth. There's going to be suffering in this world. There's brokenness, there's darkness, there's disease, and there's death. And if we recall back to last week, we know why there are such things in this present life, right? The fall of man brought these things into the world. And we are promised to face suffering. But not only that, we're also told that the suffering is a privilege. (laughs) And you're like, hold up. (laughs) Don't tell me that in the midst of suffering. How is this a privilege? But look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 5, or uh, Matthew 5, excuse me, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, it's hard to believe that suffering is a privilege in the midst of suffering. I understand that. Things are falling apart around you, and here I am telling you that you're privileged, right? So I understand it could sound kind of weird when someone's telling you all their problems. You're like, man, you're so lucky. (laughs) You're so privileged. Like, what are you talking about? No, I'm not. I'm I'm suffering. So I don't recommend you telling people in the midst of their suffering that they're privileged and they're lucky to be them at that time. Um, (laughs) But for us to understand in our own suffering that we are truly privileged in in this moment. As believers, we're not working, we have to understand, we're not working for the benefits of this world, right? We're not living just for this moment and just for this life. The world is, certainly, so when suffering surrounds them, it's the, literally the end of their world because that's the world they're living for. But we are living for eternity as believers. 
And I understand in my own life, I have to do a better job of understanding that truth in the midst of trials and tribulations. To remember that I am a child of God and I will spend eternity in his perfect kingdom. Really, we ought to all have the mindset of that of the apostles. Uh, In the book of Acts, Jesus has ascended. He's left a commission to his followers to make disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey the commands that he had taught them. And so these apostles begin sharing the gospel message to everyone who will listen, and they take this gospel message to Jerusalem and into the temple itself. Now we have to remember that preaching the name of Jesus as Messiah was considered blasphemy at the time, let alone doing it in the central hub of all Jewish religious acti- activity here. So they're, they're really playing with fire by going in and preaching the gospel message within the temple walls. But these men weren't worried about that. Jesus gave them a calling and they had to be obedient. There was no other option to these men. It wasn't, oh, this is a, something I, ha- I might have to listen to if it benefits me. It's something they just they had to do. And so naturally, the temple council hears of what's going on. They have these men arrested and brought before the council the next morning to be tried. But during the night, it tells us that an angel of the Lord came and unlocked their cell doors and they walked out of their cell. And where did they go? Did they flee? No, no. They went right back into the temple and began preaching just where they left off uh, before they were rudely interrupted. Um, And of course, word gets back to the council as they go into the cells and realize they're not there. And word gets back that, hey, uh, you know, those guys you arrested, they're back in the temple again and they're they're preaching the same message as yesterday. And so they have them brought back in for their trial. for their hearing and these ragtag men these fishermen and and a tax collector and a zealot and all these others come in and and Peter speaks up and explains why they're there you know we have to preach the message of Jesus Christ we're not going to stop and he's so eloquent with his words that the temple council has no response they don't know how to respond to this guy they were expecting some fishermen to kind of give his thoughts but the Holy Spirit was speaking through him And so these Pharisees were very upset. It tells us that they wanted to have these men killed. But one Pharisee in particular spoke up. And the man named Gamaliel, he was the same Pharisee that taught Paul before Paul became saved. Uh, And he actually gave them some wise words. He he essentially said, if these men are of God, you killing them is not going to be good. You're just going to anger God. So don't kill them. And if they're not of God, they'll just go away. And they'll never be heard from again. Um, but before they release them, they have these men beaten, most likely with, with a rod of some sort. Uh, and I imagine it was very painful. But perhaps the most amazing thing about this story is the response to everything that these men had. In Acts 5.41, it tells us that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Can you imagine? You know, these these men just got beaten black and blue. They sent them on their way, and they just high fiving each other. Man, that was awesome. <laughs> this is great. Isn't this wonderful? You know, you got to think they're kind of nuts from the outside. What is going on? Why are they happy about this? Um, but still, we wonder at times, right? In the midst of suffering, in the midst of chaos and pain, you know, we ask the question: Why, God? Why? Why am I going through this? What's going on? Why aren't you answering? My prayer, what's the purpose of all this? And scripture is constantly reminding us of how we ought to face our trials and suffering, right? James 1-2, I hate when this one's brought up to my attention by the Spirit in the midst of <laughs> trials. Count it all joy when facing trials of many kinds. First Peter 1-6 tells us that we rejoice even though we have been grieved by various trials. But what we see in this is that there is a, also a promise 
when we face suffering. That there, there is a clear indication that we are privileged to face suffering, but lastly, there's a, a purpose to suffering. Romans 8.18 8, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now the word consider in this verse literally means to calculate, to process. It's a process of reasoning, thus reaching a firm conclusion. So essentially Paul is saying, I've, I've thought on this subject long and hard. And I have come to a firm conclusion. Paul doesn't just come up with this belief statement, though. He, he's, he's lived it. This is a man who has suffered greatly in his own life. If you've ever read through the book of Acts or the letters to the Corinthians, you know that Paul was a man who suffered greatly. He's not speaking out of just what God told him. He's also speaking out of personal life experience. In, for, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists the many different ways in which he had suffered, which includes being bitten by an extremely poisonous snake, shipwrecked, I think three times it tells us, uh, having to flee multiple multiple cities uh, because they wanted his head on a platter. Uh, he, he, was, he, he suffered greatly. He was imprisoned several different times. And uh, in Galatians 6.17, Paul says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Saying that he has suffered greatly just as Jesus suffered. In Philippians 3 verse 8, Paul says that he has suffered the loss of all things. But Paul realized something. When he laid out all of his sufferings, right, the shipwrecks, the snake bite, the beating, the hunger pains, being, being externally excommunicated from his family and other relationships, the, the discouragement of meeting hostility when sharing the gospel. He's saying the loss of all things. And, and, and when you lay them side by side, if you put a list of all the things that he had lost and all the things he had suffered, and he lays it next to a list of the external glory that is coming, that's going to be revealed to us, he says it doesn't even compare. He says it's beyond comparison. It, it's, it, it doesn't hold a candle. All the suffering in this world does not hold a candle to what is to come. There's no comparison even worth making. The glory far outweighs the hardships of this life. That there is something so much greater that is coming. But not only that, Paul also recognized that his suffering also produced a new understanding in his life. Number one, his suffering kept him dependent on Jesus rather than leaning on his own understanding. Has anyone here ever reached that point in their life where they've been attempting and trying so hard to just figure life out on their own, have all these problems, you know, come across their desk and I can handle it, I can figure it out, I have it, I, I can do this. And slowly but surely you're being crushed by all these things, right? Just all of the, the worries in life and all of the difficulties and you reach a point where you just cry out to God, I don't know what else to do, God. I, I need your help. I can't do this anymore. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm failing miserably. I need your help. And as much as I really hate to admit it, suffering has a way of breaking us of many things, like pride and self-idolatry and, and many more things. And oftentimes it leads us back to God, right? A God that we've forsaken for our own ability. I've been there, and oftentimes I try to handle everything that life throws at me, first and foremost, on my own strength, on my own ability. And I'll, pretty much every time, <laughs> I leave humbled and broken and wondering why I just didn't cry out to God to begin with. And so Paul understood that suffering kept him dependent on Jesus. And number two, it kept him glorifying the Lord. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
understand this today, everybody. Sometimes suffering is the tool God uses in order that he might increase and we might decrease so that the Lord can be glorified. Okay, if there's anything you're going to grasp today out of this message, I want it to be that, that sometimes when we suffer, it is the tool that God uses in order that, we might, that he might increase, that we might decrease, and that in that, God can be glorified. You know, so it was with this insight that Paul could say, I've calculated it, I have, I have counted the cost, I have measured everything up, and the glory that is coming far outweighs any suffering in this world, that there's not even a debate to be had. And so with that, Paul gives us a little testimony here. Continuing in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So, number one, we see that there is a lot of groaning (laughs) going on. If anyone has kids, you probably know what groaning sounds like. Take out the trash. You've got to be kidding me. You know, there's a lot of groaning going on, though. Three different things are listed to be groaning. Number one, it says creation. Number two, it tells us even Christians are groaning. And lastly, even the Holy Spirit, it says groans. Verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now the word, the, the, the phrase there, eager longing, when translated, it gives a visual of someone who's trying to catch a glimpse of something, standing on their tippy toes, craning their neck around, trying to see. There's an eager longing, an anticipation. And I know what that's like. I'm not the tallest person in the world, so I know what it's like. <laughs> but I remember particularly one, when I lived in San Diego, my dad took me to a Padres playoff game. You're like, they've been in the playoffs? you got to be kidding. Yes, they were in the playoffs back in the day. We had Tony Gwynn and Trevor Hoffman, so we were pretty good. Um, <laughs> but we went to a playoff game, and this place was rocking. And I remember it was one of the later innings. It was a very close game. Um, I can remember the moment, too. I think we had a guy on second base, and uh, the batter for the Padres, he just got, get, gets a hold of a pitch. You can hear the, the, the crack of the bat. And immediately, everyone stands up, and my 10-year-old self can't see a thing. I'm like, what is happening? So I stand on my chair, and the guy in front of me naturally is like six foot eight. So I still can't see anything. I'm craning my neck, looking everywhere to see what happened. Um, I hear cheering, so I'm like, well, that's good. We probably did something right. Uh, come to find out, we scored a run and eventually won the game, but I couldn't see it because I was too short. And uh, but I just remember, and that's exactly what this reminded me of, is just on your tippy toes, craning. And this is, it tells us, was this exactly what creation is doing? It is eagerly longing and awaiting the coming of God. So why would creation, though, it's, it's interesting, why would creation be waiting expectantly for the glory of God? First, it tells us it was subjected to futility. In other words, it's not what it was originally created to be in the very beginning. 
I mean, I'm sure many of us have traveled and seen different areas of, of just our country alone, but maybe other countries in, as well. And, uh, man, there is some just breathtaking places in this world, is there not? I mean, I've been to the Grand Canyon as a kid when I don't appreciate anything, and I was still blown away. <laughs> uh, I couldn't believe it. I, I've been to Costa Rica, and I remember as we were uh, in the rainforest, and, and just the tops of the canopy, and overlooking, and just seeing this vast area of rainforest, and just being blown away at God's beautiful creation, these mountains, and up in the wilderness. I just could not believe how beautiful this world is. And of course, we're spoiled up here in northern Michigan as well. Um, but still, all of these things, it's not as beautiful as it was originally created to be. Right? Death came to us as people, but it also came to creation as well. We have to remember that. Part of the curse in Genesis 3, it says, Cursed is the ground that you walk upon. The entire universe was subject to decay because of sin in the garden. And I've heard someone put it this way before. It says, Man's sin put the thorn on the rose. Creation can no longer achieve the goal and purpose that it was originally designed for. And none of the creation exists as it once did before the, Paul, uh, before the fall. And once more, I, I couldn't find the person who quoted this. I looked online, but I've heard it before. And it's a, it's a great illustration. And this is what they said. Although all of nature is like a grand symphony of size and, the, and all the sound of nature are in a minor key, one day that will change. All of nature sings a song of bondage yet it sings in hope. So creation's destiny is uniquely linked with ours. We have to remember that we are also part of this creation as well, and so we are subject to futility as well. We also die, we are also corrupted, we are also no longer perfect. And so creation is groaning for the day that it can go back to its perfection. Number two, Christians are also groaning. In verse 23, it says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So not only did the fall of man affect creation, it also affected mankind. And all of humanity is marred by sin. And we too are ultimately not what we are originally created for by God. But one day, we are promised we will be, right? We'll have a glorified body. So when you're groaning at six in the morning getting out of bed because your back hurts, <laughs> no more. We will have a glorified body, but until then, what do we do? It tells us we groan, and we groan quite often. It says that we are groaning because we are also longing for the day of perfection once more. It says that we have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. But what does that mean? In the Old Testament, the first fruits were offered to God. Basically, it meant that this is the first part of a greater harvest that is going to come. And so for us as believers, we've been given, in essence, the first installment of greater things to come. We've been given the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. And it's almost, once we receive that first fruit of the Holy Spirit, it's almost like our, our appetite has been wet for a glory that is coming, right? We, we just want more and more. We have part of it, but we want all of it. Now, I remember um, a man by the name Dave Haas. He was a, a spiritual leader uh, in Texas. Um, and uh, incredible, incredible human being. But uh, he had some funny quirks about him. You know, he used to tell us that before going to bed, he would lay like he was in a coffin, and this would drive his wife nuts. She's like, what are you doing? You're crazy. And he's like, I'm just imagining being dead and being <laughs> in the presence of my Savior. And, uh, you know, he, and I remember, and he's faced a lot of trials in his life. That wife passed away of cancer. And, you know, and I remember him 
uh, facing it and experiencing joy in the midst of it because he knew where she was. And he, he says, in a way, I'm almost jealous of her. <laughs> you know, he, he had just had a completely different mindset than you're used to seeing with other people because he was just so in tune with the Spirit. But, he, you know, he was almost like, you know, I wish that was me. <laughs> you know, I wish I was there right now. But he had this idea because he knew and he under, fully understood that this glory yet to come far outweighs anything we have here on this earth. And no, I don't lay in my bed like I'm in a coffin. I'm too tired to do that. <laughs> I just groan. <laughs> um... <laughs> but First John chapter three verse two it says, "Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is." Man, that's pretty awesome. If you ask me, that verse it brings so much hope and and instills so much confidence in the future that is to come. It says that we will be like. Jesus. So of course we groan and we eagerly await the new heaven and the new earth because we'll be like our Savior. And it says that we'll be in his presence. We will see him as he is. Incredible. So of course we groan with the spirit that's within us because we desire that. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-54 says, But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will be but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that, we, that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. And that right there, that's the hope of every believer this morning. That, that this thing, this, this life we're living now, the suffering, the pain, the hardship, the aches and pains of the body, the sickness, all those things are going to be gone. This is just a brief vapor, a moment in time. And I know that in the moment of pain and suffering, it feels like a lifetime. I, I get that. But there's hope that that's, this is just a brief moment, a flash in the pan, and we're going to be in heaven forever. 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For we know that if, the t- that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And the tent, of course, is referring to our bodies. So why do we groan as believers? I, I believe that one, we see the effects of sin in the lives of people we care about, right? Have you ever seen someone that you love greatly just swallowed up in sin, living a life far from God? And I don't know if you've ever been hit with a heaviness when seeing the world around us, perhaps seeing someone struggling or witnessing the darkness that envelops this world, but something, it, it groans within us, right? We see someone on a dark path or see someone going through so much pain and suffering you just wonder why. But it's something that groans inside us, desiring something more, something different. Really, we're desiring something whole, something perfect. Maybe we groan when we see gifted people wasting their lives. But, but that groaning will one day give way to glory, it tells us. And lastly, it says the Spirit of God also groans with us in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. One of my favorite sections of the scripture this morning is in this verse right here. 
The Spirit helps in our weakness. I love that. He lends a hand, right? The Spirit's not an armchair quarterback, you know. Hey, uh, you know, you should probably do this over here, uh, just an FYI, but, you know, I really don't care if you don't. It's just giving you a heads up. No, it's the Spirit. He rolls up his sleeves, he gets in there, and he works in what? He works in our weaknesses. The Spirit of God lifts us up in our weaknesses, and one of the ways he does that is through prayer. There are, there are times in life when, you know, I don't even know what to pray for, right? Someone shares a, some news with you, or uh, there's just something going on, and you're just like, I don't even know how to pray for this. I don't even know where to start. This is just so mind-boggling or heartbreaking. And there may, be, there may come a time in your life where you sit at the you know, side of a, of a hospital bed and you can't even formulate a sentence, right? You, I don't know. I can't give you words of comfort. I don't even know what to say. I don't even know how to pray in this moment. But Scripture tells us that the Spirit does, and He's interceding on our behalf. And if that's not help, I don't know what is. Uh, that's such an encouragement to know that the Spirit is praying, and, he knows, and, and God knows our hearts too. A.T. Robertson once said that the Holy Spirit holds our weakness along with us and carries his part of the burden facing us as two men were carrying a log, one at each end. Aren't you happy to know that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses? I know I am. I need a lot of help. (laughs) I know the Spirit in my life is doing a lot of heavy lifting right now. So while Paul tells us there's no comparison to what our future holds, and creation is groaning, the Christian is groaning, the Spirit is groaning, listen to what Paul says. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I don't always know what the will of God is, but the Spirit does, and he helps me pray accordingly. And then in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is one of those verses I don't, unless the Spirit is prompting you, I don't recommend using it in the midst of someone's pain and suffering. You know, this is work, hey, God said it's going to work out for his glory, don't worry about it. You know, it doesn't go over too well when someone's in the midst of some serious suffering in life. It's a wonderful truth that hopefully will be revealed to them in, in, in the coming time. God, God knows the timing. But it doesn't t- typically go over well when you're just like, you know, cheer up. <laughs> you know, it, there's a purpose for this. You know, because in, in the midst of it, sometimes you don't see that purpose or you can doubt that purpose. And although it's a wonderful truth to understand, God will reveal that truth to them in their time. Now, it's interesting to see, too, that Paul does not say that for those who love God, some things work together for good, or most things work together for good. What does he say? He says, all things work together for good. It literally, it has to be rendered so that we know it with great certainty, great certainty, excuse me. We know with absolute assurance that all things are working together for our ultimate good. We also have to understand that sometimes we ourselves don't know <laughs> what is best for us. We don't know the ultimate good because we desire something different than God is placing in our lives at a current time or place. So it's important to understand it may not work out the way you thought, but for your ultimate good that relates to eternity, he's promising it's working out just as I planned. The promise that is given here, notice who it's given to, right? It's given to a specific group of people. It's not given to every single person in the world. It is made to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. 
See, the world cannot say this, that all things are working out for their good. The world can't say this because if the world does not love God (laughs) and follow him. But the believer can have this confidence in every situation that somehow God is going to work it out for my ultimate good. Right? I may not understand it. I may not even like it at the time. (laughs) But I can trust God because of what he said. We, again, we have to understand too, guys, that this life is just a brief period of time in comparison to the eternity that awaits us. And I love the encouraging words of Isaiah 43, verse 2. It says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. See, that's the confidence that we can have, right? Because all things are working out together for our ultimate good because we love God and are called according to his purpose. And at this time and in this part of my life, perhaps his purpose right now is for me. But how can I have such confidence? Look at, let's look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this verse right here is what we have, is what some people call the golden chain of salvation or the golden chain of redemption. Right? And you see these, all these links being put together as he's explaining things down the line. There is no condemnation. We are liberated from the law by the Spirit of God. Excuse me. And the present sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. Right? All things are working together for good. Why? Because it says God foreknew you. That word is used seven times in the New Testament. God knew you before you were ever thought of, before your parents thought of even having kids. God knew you. And and get this, God knew you before the foundations of the earth. I can't understand it. I can't explain that to you. (laughs) That's beyond my finite understanding of everything. But it is truly amazing. Psalms 139 says this, For you were formed, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's wombs. In my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Pretty incredible, isn't it? That your days were being formed by God before there were even days to be counted. And not only did God foreknow you, he predestined you as well. Ephesians 1 puts it this way, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, he, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, I'm not going to get into today the the argument of predestination and free will. Um, I'll be happy to discuss that with you if you have any questions about it. Um, And and I'll give you my thoughts and my beliefs on that. But um, furthermore, continuing on, he foreknew us. It says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the word conformed means to render like, right? To, To make you like Christ. And it refers to the outward expression of the inward essence, right? That God, that that is God's purpose is to make us like Jesus. 
And so if we want to even go further down in this golden chain of redemption, it says he has called us, even knowing who I'd become, right? Even knowing the mistakes I would make, he says, I'm going to call you. And then in that calling, it says he's justified us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally, the fifth thing, he glorified us. Now notice all of these, all these words here, all these verbs being used. They're past tense, right? What does that mean? It means it's already been done. We are justified and we are already glorified in the presence of God. We also have to remember this is all very confusing in our finite minds and understanding of how time works, but God is outside of time and space, so he has seen the beginning, he's seen the end, he knows everything in between, so to him we are glorified, we are justified. One scholar put the boldness of Paul's statement this way. He says, this is the most daring anticipation of faith that the New Testament contains. So what Paul is saying is that God not only acquitted us of sin, but he clothes us with glory. And it becomes very clear as you read this passage that salvation truly is a work of God and has nothing to do with our own works or the work of man. There's a story I once heard uh, from a in the church when I was growing up. And it said a man gave a testimony about how God sought him and found him, how how God loved him and called him and saved him and cleansed him, how God healed and freed him. Uh, It was a wonderful testimony about the work of God in his life. And after service, um, a legalistic man from the church approached him and said to him, that was a a very good testimony. It was well written, well articulated, uh, but you left one thing out. And the man replied, what's that? You know, and the legalistic man said, you never told us what you did. What was your part in all of this? And the man with the testimony replied, oh, you're right. I'm, I'm very sorry. My part was this. I ran. I ran as hard and as fast as I could from God. And his part was running after me until he found me. <laughs> but isn't that the truth, though, of salvation? It has nothing to do with what we do. <laughs> it has everything to do with what God does. We have to understand that salvation is a work of God. And and in light of this, in these final several verses, Paul says, beginning in verse 31, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul closes this chapter with what many call the hymn of security. He asks a series of rhetorical questions that all Christians should be able to answer pretty quickly and pretty confidently. But first, what should we say of all this, right? The glory that is going to be revealed, the power of the Spirit leading and directing the condemnation, of no condemnation, what shall we say of all that? And that's what he's asking. And here's what we should say. Another question, if God is for us, who can be against us? When is the last time you meditated on that fact? That God is for you, therefore who can be against you? I call this, this is my calling, I call this the mic drop of Romans 8. (laughs) It's a humbling and incredible reality, right? You have to understand God is for you. He's not against you. God is for you. Even in the midst of pain, struggling, hardship, whatever it is you're facing, you have to understand and believe that God is for you. He's not against you. And if he's for you, then who can be against you? And he continues in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then he drops the mic again. (laughs) If God took care of the greatest need that humanity has, which is salvation, and he gave his very best, he sent his only son to die on the cross, 
Don't you think he's going to take care of all the other things? Don't you think he's going to take care of of the, the suffering and the pain and the hardship in your life? He took care of the greatest of all human problems, right? It's not world hunger, even though it's a problem. But you can feed everyone and there's going to still be people that go to hell. Right? The greatest world problem is not cancer. You can cure everyone of cancer, but people are still going to go to hell. The greatest problem of, human, of humanity is salvation. We can't, can't do that on our own. And he, and he came in, he swept up, and, and gave us that hope by sending his son on the cross and now offering us that opportunity of salvation. He, is, he has already taken care of the greatest of all human problems. Now certainly, world hunger and cancer, I'm not diminishing those things at all. Please don't misunderstand me. Those things are very, very major world problems as well, but they're also a result of the fall of man that we've talked about. But as we close this morning, Paul asks a few more powerful rhetorical questions to help us realize just how great God's love for us truly is. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So he's asking, who's going to bring any charge against you? saying no one the only person or the only thing that could bring charge against you is God himself but he has already made you justified in his presence and glorified in his presence so who's to condemn us then right satan we've talked about this literally translate as the accuser so he stands before um, the throne of god and accuses humanity of all its sins and saying that they're not deemed worthy but he cannot condemn us. There's no condemnation because it's Christ that says who died and is risen and is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. And so Jesus, it tells us, is praying for us. We've, in this, this little section of scripture, it tells us the Holy Spirit is interceding for us and it tells us that Jesus is interceding for us. So we've been justified and from his perspective in heaven, we've also been glorified, right? It's a done deal. So we need not stress or worry. God has already taken care of it. And then Paul concludes with a final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? And Paul answers the question for us a couple verses later, just in case you were wondering, just in case you had any doubts. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I would love to spend more time on this passage, and someday I'm sure we will. This is an incredibly uplifting and encouraging passage. And I hope, my hope is that you find hope <laughs> this morning. This is where we find our hope. You see, from creation to fall, right, we were left without hope. Right? We, we were lost, we were broken, had no way of saving ourselves, we were condemned to hell. But from fall to redemption... Our hope is restored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The encouragement for us this morning is that there is nothing, it tells us, that can separate us from the love of God. The battle's already been won. The mission has already been accomplished. It's, it's a done deal. 
And just as Paul says, I am sure, in verse 38, I too have been fully persuaded. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God and Jesus our Lord. So my question for you this morning is, are you, are you persuaded of that? Are you convinced of that truth? My prayer, of course, is that you are. It's incredible that not even the very turning of our backs to God as recorded in Genesis 3 can separate us from the love of God. That very moment, I can't imagine the heartbreak that God felt. As he's walking in the garden, he's asking Adam, where, where are you? You know, you, you, I, I could find you. You were always in my presence. You were always there, but where are you now? Not even that heartbreak separates us from the love of God because he already had a plan in place. He said, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to capture you. I'm going to rescue you. And he does so by sending his only son. And if that is the epitome of God's love for us that we can somewhat grasp, I don't, you know, I don't know how best to explain it. I have three sons. I wouldn't give any of them up for the world. <laughs> but, but, but God did. He said, you're worth it. Even to the very people that continually turn their backs and blaspheme against his name, he said, you're worth it. It's truly, truly incredible and, and, and humbling to think about. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's a story that I love about a preacher named John Christostom. And uh, he was around during the mid to late 300s. <laughs> so it was a long time ago. I never met the guy. Um, but I like him. Um, but he was brought before an empress and she threatened him with banishment if he insisted on his Christian independence as a preacher. And this is what he says to her. It's recorded and I, I took it from its old English. He had a lot of yees and these and thous and stuff and I, we kind of modernized it, I guess. But he says, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. And so she responds, but I will kill you. He says, no, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ and God. She says, I will take away your treasures. He says, no, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. And she lastly says, but I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. He says, no, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. He says, I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. <laughs> I love that response this morning and I hope that's how we can all respond to what life throws our way right there is nothing that this world can do to defy us that they can do to harm us ultimately sure it can take our life away it can take our possessions away it can take our friends and family away but it can't take God away that's that's what John Chrysostom is trying to articulate here and I think he articulates it very well but just having that response to the world to the enemy to everything around us you know I defy you <laughs> There's nothing you can do to harm me. And this is the attitude we all ought to adopt. It's my prayer for us this morning that we'd all adopt that kind of mindset. I understand that there's, there's groaning, right? Creation groans, we groan, the spirit groans, our children groan. <laughs> but someday, we will go from groaning to glory. But until then, it does much good to remember that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Right? In the midst of all that groaning, there's nothing that's going to separate you from the love of God. And I know that sometimes we can feel like it's not love in the midst of pain and hardship or that he's not there, he's not listening, but that's not the case. Right? Jesus came to this earth in human form and he experienced pain and suffering just as any of us have. So he understands, he, he empathizes with us in our pain and in our longing and in our groaning because he, he faced it and experienced it too. 
So that's my hope, is that you will believe that truth this morning, that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. That's my prayer, is that we would hold fast to that and believe it, and adopt the attitude of, I defy you, there is nothing you can do to harm me to this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just give this day to you. Lord, we thank you that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. And we thank you that your plan was in place before the foundations of the earth to rescue us from our sin and our mistakes, Lord, that you have already done that, that the victory has already been won. And if we have placed our faith in you, you deem us justified and glorified in your presence, Lord God. We thank you for that this morning. Lord, I just lift up anyone here who it may be going through some serious struggles in this life. Lord, I just, help, I just pray that you would help them see beyond this present life and see the glory that awaits us. Lord, I just pray that they would feel your presence, your goodness, and your love in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their tribulation, and know that you are good, that all things work together for good for those that, that love you, Lord, and are called according to your purpose. Lord, I, I pray that we would see our suffering as also a privilege. I know it's hard in the midst of it, but count it uh, just as the apostles did, that they were celebrating the fact that they were deemed worthy to suffer for their sake, for your sake, Lord. That we would see suffering like that at times. That we are suffering for your sake and your glory, that you would be revealed to this world and to the people around us. And lastly, Lord, I just pray that you would grant us with a peace that surpasses our human understanding in the midst of suffering. We may not ever receive an answer to the why in the midst of hardship, but we know that you are good. And just to understand and believe and have faith and hold fast to that truth, Lord God, and just to remember the glory that is going to be revealed to us in the future for all eternity, Lord, that far outweighs anything that we can experience here. I pray that we would just hold fast to that truth as well. And Lord, we just give you this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your, the hope that you have brought us. A hope that, that is knowing, Lord. A hope that knows that the victory has been won. And we just give this day to you. In your name we pray. Amen.